Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We really need to focus our attention on restaurants, which have been uniquely hammered. They've been forced to shut their doors. And there's a question of how quickly they will be able to get back online and how many of them will even survive throughout this. Mike Halen joining us now, senior restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone. Mike, do you have a sense of the proportion of restaurants that have closed their doors that will easily get back up and going? And I know you look specifically at a lot of the chains that have already closed their doors. Yeah, so, you know, it's really going to depend on, on uh, the business model, right? So, um, you know, in, in our in our world with the publicly traded chains, if you're fast food and you're doing, you know, between 50 and 70% of your business through the drive-through and probably another 15 to 20 via delivery, you're not going to be impacted as much. I mean, granted, you are going to be impacted. There's less, less people commuting to work, right? People aren't going out and um, running errands and doing some shopping and, and stopping for a burger uh, while they're out so much, and they're doing a lot more shopping at the grocery store and, and cooking at home. So sales are still going to be down. But if you're a fast food and you have a drive-through, you know you're in pretty good shape. You know, but for casual dining, for full-service restaurants, it's a very, very different situation. You know, uh, you know, for example, Texas Roadhouse, a great chain, they only do about 7% of their sales in, in to go and they don't have any delivery. And obviously they don't have any drive through. So, you know, in casual dining land, you know, for, for restaurants that close their dining room, they could lose, you know, between 75 and 90% of their sales. So, Mike, give us a sense of kind of how these companies are trying to cope with it. Will they make it? Are they, how are they trying to kind of deal with this complete lack of revenue yeah so for for the casual dining chains and, and now we're starting to see with the, with uh, fast food chains as well uh they're fully drawing down on their revolving credit facilities uh they're suspending buybacks and and uh suspending their dividends to try to um hold on to whatever cash flow and raise whatever cash they can uh they're gonna they're closing stores where it, it makes sense um you know, and they're trying to push delivery and uh, to go as as much as possible, try to grow, grow that business as quickly as possible so that they can continue to employ some of their employees, uh, stay in front of the customers for whenever this does end. Um, you know, so, 
you know, chains are kind of doing whatever they can, but, you know, we expect a lot of uh, um, store closures. We also saw a note yesterday uh, out that, that said Cheesecake Factory is, is, is saying that they're not going to pay rent until they can reopen. So, you know, rents are a pretty big expense. Even if you're shut, you know, the rent bill continues to keep coming. So we expect to hear a lot more of this as well, where the the uh, restaurant chains are going to maybe hold off on paying rent until they yeah. can open their doors again. Mike, I wonder how much this just accelerates a trend that already was in place because we saw restaurant traffic go down at some of these casual dining places even before the coronavirus and even amid a really good consumer confidence. I mean, how many of these bankruptcies would have happened anyway? Yeah, well, and also there's been, you know, low interest rates helping to keep zombie chains alive for quite some time, right? So, yeah, I agree. I I think... This is definitely going to speed up the process. You're going to see some of the casual dining chains that do do not uh, have a, a loyal customer base any longer start to close even more stores. I mean, we've seen a lot. We've seen chains like uh, Applebee's, you know, close a lot of stores over the last couple of years. We expect uh, store closures to, to accelerate. Uh, so, yeah, it is kind of accelerating a trend, but, you know, some of these, you know, I, you know, I'm going to say the Fed and and um, kind of the Wall Street echo chamber and the management teams all together uh, kind of put themselves in, in a tough position. You know, half of the companies we cover have levered up to buy buyback stock, uh, you know, at 25, 30 times earnings, you know, and now that these stocks are down 60, 70 percent off their highs, they're suspending their buyback programs. Right. So, you know, th- their balance sheets aren't in a, in a great spot heading into this, which we think is going to exacerbate the problem. Hey, Mike, how about the mom-and-pop restaurants, the local restaurants that are shut down? Just typically, how much, how long can they last like that? Yeah, it's the same type of thing. It's going to depend on their balance sheet, but it, it's hard. You know, in the restaurant business, you're basically, you know, making money, you know, one month out of the year, right? One month out of the year is, is all your profits. The other 11 months goes towards paying your labor, you know, paying your food costs, paying the rent. It's a very low margin business. We're talking about mid single digit net margin business. So a lot of these chains can't stay open for long. You know, thankfully there's some provisions in here uh, for the independents as well as the larger chains we covered to, uh, you know, borrow some money. They're going to get some tax breaks and hopefully, hopefully be able to, to, you know, weather the storm for at least a few months, but just, as a um, just to give you some color, you know the yeah. one of the best run chains we cover is is Darden. They were the adults in the room. They did not lever up to buy back their stock. They used their cash flow to do it. They increased their sales and their margins by providing very you know very good service and good food and motivating the customers to return. Right. So yeah. So you know they they have only six months of cash basically at their current burn rate. We're going to have to leave it there. Mike Haley, Senior Restaurant Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, really highlighting what is being felt across the restaurant sector uh, around the country. 
Federal Reserve has thrown the kitchen sink at markets in large part in response to the apparent dollar shortage increasing strains in the dollar funding market. And this has hit emerging markets particularly hard. Damian Sassauer has been tracking it uh, as, as chief market strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us now. Damian, I'm wondering, we are seeing the dollar weaken a bit in the past few sessions, but still the move is to be stronger. And I'm wondering how bad has it been uh, in the emerging markets complex? Yeah, you know, I've been fielding a lot of questions asking what happens if this dollar just keeps rising and EM can't pay their debts in dollar. And um, with the broad trade-weighted USD now at a 50-year high, you're really left with two options. If, if you're an EM sovereign that's got, you know, dollar obligations, um, do you do not? I mean, what, what does the U.S. do? Does it do nothing and let them default, or does it offer debt forgiveness? In both scenarios, Lisa, they're very inflationary, right? So especially as the U.S. fiscal situation worsens, I mean, $2 trillion stimulus is just the tip of the iceberg, it seems, and the government reluctant to offer bailouts to Boeing and big companies, I imagine they're not going to be very uh, open to a new Brady plan either. So, uh, so EM's going to have a tough time here. So, Damien, give us a sense of kind of where the greatest risk is that you see out there in EM world. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard to kind of pick and choose, but, you know, there are things that investors can do, uh, you know, if they are indeed willing to take that plunge and invest in emerging market, you know, local assets. One is to diversify your funding sources, right? I mean, most people, dollar investors think, okay, you know, I'm taking the dollars in my pocket, I'm converting them into EM currencies and investing. But what you can do is you can also spread the dollar exposure, your short dollar exposure now around other developed market companies like the Swiss franc, like the Japanese yen, the British pound, the euro, etc. And if you do that, you actually have a much more attractive risk-adjusted return profile, over, you know, historically speaking, obviously. And you can definitely protect, uh, protect if the dollar does indeed continue to decline here. So, you know, there is some benefit there. There are ways that you can kind of manage around this. But, yeah, I mean, it's going to be very volatile, very whippy, and the structure of emerging markets really doesn't offer itself to taking short-term risk, if you follow me. I mean, some of these markets are very illiquid. Yeah, and talking about that, there's also a question of just how much debt has been incurred by some of these developing markets and companies there. And the idea that this imbalance in dollars isn't just simply a technical problem, but just an overall imbalance where too many, <laughs> too many dollars were borrowed by a lot of these countries. And I'm wondering, you know, yes, we're seeing some of the stress eased up, but how much pressure is there still that's going to cause a rash of defaults that people are expecting that may not be fully priced in even yet? Well, I think you have to look at those that are most exposed, right, Lisa? So for me, you know, just looking at, you know, you know, emerging market sovereigns that have borrowed in dollars, it's the uh, frontier sovereigns, the oil exporting frontier sovereigns like Nigeria, Angola, Gabon. I mean, you've seen Ecuador now file for default. I mean, those are the ones that are obviously front and center. But, you know, it's all of those other sovereigns that have, um, you know, that are relying on tourist revenues, you know, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica. These are big issuers in EM. And so, you know, there's a lot of debt out there in dollars. They're going to have a lot of difficulty paying them back. But the question becomes a political one. You know, who do we, you know, who do we bail out and who don't we? And, you know, that can potentially ignite a virtuous cycle of sovereign restructurings that really would break the buck and cause, you know, hyper, a hyperinflationary scare in my mind. So, you know, there's really no, no easy way to go about it, but I don't think you can ignore it. I mean, what, what the U.S. has done here post-2008, it's ignored a lot of the things that could potentially go wrong, you know, post-Bocker, post-Dodd-Frank. Now we're just paying for it here. To ignore this would be short-sighted in my view. All right. So give us a sense of timing, Damien. Where are we going to see the biggest problems first, do you think? 
Right. So it's definitely going to hit the oil exporters first and foremost. They definitely have some capacity to manage through it in the near term, even more so if the dollar continues to come off here. But if the dollar does another, you know, about face and really rips to the upside, for whatever reason, you know, Paul, um, you're really going to see a lot of them start, you know, going to the IMF, going to the World Bank. I mean, you've already seen those two big multilaterals turn to the U.S. and say, hey, we need, <laughs> we need help here to sort, of, uh, to sort of stem the tide. But, you know, it, it's, it's no real easy uh, question to say. I mean, look, I wouldn't be sitting here talking. But I'd be on a beach somewhere if I knew the timing around this, right? So, so I think that's really what it comes down to. You just have to watch all these little pockets in the market and hope for the best. Damien, you've been covering this market for decades. You've got a lot of contacts. And one reason why I always love speaking with you is you can kind of get a feel for the mood. And honestly, the people who I speak to just seem exhausted. It's just been a ping pong kind of market uh, going in different directions, pocked by uncertainty, pocked by depression, pocked by isolation. And I'm wondering, where are we in that cycle? I mean, are people actually starting to look for opportunities or are people just sort of sitting out and saying, this one I don't understand? All right. So, I mean, look, the first and foremost, you know, I'd, I'd have to address. <laughs> All right. Let me roll up my Let, sleeves. Let's, let's go. <laughs> let's do it. Um, so, you know, the Japanese cross currency basis, which was the last one to blow, is finally narrowed, and it's narrowed by 50% overnight, right? I mean, you saw, you may see that the euro and the pound are now very, very positive, which means they're flush with dollars. So the dollar hoarding, yes, while it still, you know, persists offshore, there's a lot of dollars being thrown at the issue. So I think this whole, you know, thought that there aren't, you know, dollar hoarding, not enough dollars, let's put that to bed for a minute. Now, where are the bottlenecks coming up? They're obviously in credit land, no question about it. You've seen the move in spreads. Everyone's seen it. Everyone's watching it. And it's the, um, it's really the mortgage market that scares me the most. I mean, that was the epicenter back in 2008. We're starting to see some of these mortgage REITs roll, you know, get meet, mar they're unable to meet margin calls. And these aren't just anyone. These are Invesco, Angelo Gordon, TPG, um, and, and their portfolios are getting taken over by, by banks and, and, and being liquidated in the market. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, to bring in people in my mind, like, you know, uh, who, who kind of helped us in the past, like Paulson and Geithner and BlackRock. I mean, that's while that's all said and good, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'd love to see Simon Potter back at the New York Federal Reserve because, <laughs> you know, he used to run the markets desk. And if there's one person to know where the landmines are and where the bodies are buried, it's Simon. And so, you know, it's interesting how quiet things have been on that front. I'd really like to just see some more clarity as to how we're going to address some of the bottlenecks that we're seeing abroad. And, you know, we see the cross-currency basis in places like Korea are still pretty wide, that they still don't have enough dollars. And, and so, you know, we just have to kind of watch all these little elements of the market on the periphery and hope everyone can kind of uh, come out of this okay, I guess. I mean, yeah. Hey, so, Dom, uh, Damien, just in uh, 30 seconds, any place to hide in emerging markets? So we definitely still like um, receiving an Indonesia on these spikes. I mean, Indo I think the Indonesian rupee has been one of the better performers today. Um, the pace has come up a long way. You've seen that come all the way back. I, I, I like countries that have a geostrategic importance to the United States, <laughs> if for no other reason than because the U.S. prints dollars. So, you know, there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them that aren't there. And, you know, I think that's where you kind of want to focus if you're looking to wait it out a bit. Damien Sassauer, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective on emerging markets. Uh, lots of volatility even above and beyond what we're seeing in the broader markets. Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg uh, Intelligence. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. 
No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. As we talk about that $2.2 trillion plan that the Congress uh, is expected to pass today, there is a question of how quickly it can get money out the door and who it gives money to. A big focus has been small and medium-sized businesses. Our next guest has a lot of experience with the balance sheets in all conditions of these companies. Adam Levitin, professor of uh, law and of uh, Georgetown Law in Washington, D.C. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. recently penned an uh, op-ed in the New York Times, How to Get Money to Small Businesses Fast. Parsing through the details, it seems like the $350 billion estimated to go to small and mid-sized businesses grants will be administered by the Small Business Administration, which has 4,000 employees. Are you concerned about the logistics getting the money out the door? Absolutely. The money is not going to move as fast as as we really need it to move. Small businesses are already laying off employees and having trouble meeting their meeting their bills. And they need they need the money not today. They needed it yesterday. And it's going to take weeks, if not longer, for um, these uh, new small business loans. And they're for, they're forgivable loans, but the interest still, the interest is not forgivable on them. Um, it's going to take weeks, if not longer, for that money to get to small businesses. There's going to have to be a process whereby small businesses apply for the loan, the loans get processed, and then finally the the, uh, the checks will be dispersed. It's not going to happen instantaneously. So, so, Professor, is there any mechanism that would be preferable to that? I mean, in reality, can you, in fact, get cash to small businesses any quicker? Um, there's one way to get cash to, into small businesses pretty much imme- Actually, there are two ways to get it into small businesses immediately. One is in the bill. Um, it's a delay in um, payroll taxes because uh, some, of the, some of the payroll taxes are paid by the business, basically your tax withholding. And the, uh, the bill is allowing businesses to dip into the funds they withhold from your payroll and just pay it to, to Treasury later. That is one thing to get some cash immediately. And another thing that could get them cash immediately is a debt moratorium or a debt collection moratorium. And what that does is it, it would affect, and that's not in the bill, I want to be clear, but that would effectively force um, a, a float and sort of an extension of payment terms from uh, things like landlords and, and, and lenders to small businesses. That would allow small businesses to prioritize their cash to keep maintaining payroll, and then Congress could, in theory at least, uh, compensate lenders and landlords on the back end with something, say, a tax credit for their uh, in the future. So you have a lot of experience in this, both in bankruptcy commercial law, but also as former special counsel to the Congressional Oversight Panel for TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program back in 2008 and 2009. I'm wondering what you think of the process of this bill. If you talk to representatives, they say this has moved as fast as anything can move in Washington, D.C. If you speak to the businesses, they say what you say. We needed the checks last week and we've already laid people off. What's your sense? Those are both true. <laughs> um, there's no contradiction there. This this bill moved remar- uh, remarkably fast. We've now, you know, this is the largest federal spending bill we've ever seen, and it it went as Congress goes at lightning speed. The problem is that Congress is not set up 
to uh, deal. Uh, it's it's meant to be a deliberative body in some sense, and it's not set up for dealing with emergencies with speed. It's there's just a, a tension between the design of our institutions and the needs of the moment. So, Professor, how do you think this stimulus will, in fact, impact small and mid-sized businesses over the next coming weeks and months? Well, there are some small, small and medium-sized businesses for which this money is just going to be too late. And um, we don't have a sense of how many of them there are uh, that, that fall in that category. That the, there's surprise, the, of the limited data we have on small businesses, and it's, it's all kind of problematic because small businesses are, don't, don't fit one profile. You know, the, 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 the dry cleaner or the restaurant looks very different than the, uh, than the small manufacturer, let's say. But in general, small businesses don't have enormous cash reserves that um, probably a best guess is that they may maybe have uh, a few weeks or a month of cash reserves on hand and, and on average. And that means that there are plenty that have less. And those that have less are going to be in real trouble and may not be able to make it until, they, and, until uh, government assistance arrives. Professor, go sorry. ahead. No. The, one, the ones that can last until they get the assistance – this will keep this, uh, what what this will do. It will keep uh, it will basically put them on life support. The government will take effectively take over payroll and uh, utilities and rent and mortgages and other debt service um, for uh, for for quite a while. The real question is how long does the crisis last? Absolutely, that's kind of been the the key question. Adam Levitin, thank you so much for joining us and giving us uh, your thoughts and perspective. Adam Levitin is a Georgetown law professor and former special counsel to the Congressional Oversight Panel of TARP. We are seeing gains, as Charlie was saying, in equity markets, which is interesting when you contrast it with the unbelievable number, a record number of unemployment, uh, initial jobless claims filed, 3.3 million. It raises a question here. We knew it was bad. We don't know how bad. This indicates it's very, very bad. And yet, is the indication in markets right now that the U.S. Congress can save it or that the Fed and the Cong- and Congress together uh, can somehow cushion the blow and that we've priced in most of the pain. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, joining us now. Kara Kadana, Chief U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics. Dave, I, I want to start with you. Is that the implication from the 2.7% rally we're seeing right now on the S&P? Boy, it sure looks that way, Lisa, especially when you consider what's leading the advance in the S&P 500. We're talking Synchrony Financial, Capital One, and Discover Financial. All these companies are in the credit card business. And you talk about an area of the market where you think people would be concerned given the jump in jobless claims that we just saw, you know, raising the issue of whether people are going to be able to keep up their payments on their credit cards. And yet these stocks are all up like 12% or more. Synchrony up 13.5%. Now, Capital One actually got an upgrade over at Oppenheimer, the firm moved to the equivalent of buy from hold on the stock. They basically say that company will you know, hold up okay. I mean, given you know, everything that's coming in terms of credit. So, you know, that, that's well, something that really jumps out at you. And is, to see oh. its peers go up as much as they have, I mean, it really gets your attention. Yeah, and, and really, this is exactly where I wanted to go, Carl. How much is the high number a good thing? And, and good is in quotes, not a good thing. It's terrible and a tragedy for all those people losing their jobs, but a sign that at least millions of people will be receiving unemployment benefits, potentially cushioning the lack of revenue that they're getting elsewhere. 
the turn in the markets is really a signal of a couple of things. Uh, and so, first of all, uh, you know, Jay Powell uh, this morning on the uh, Today Show said that the Fed is nowhere near uh, running out of ammunition to confront the crisis. Uh, yesterday, uh, there was a Bloomberg News scoop that uh, the ECB uh, is getting ready to act more aggressively uh, as well. Uh, and then also uh, today, we see uh, very convincing signs that we're close to Congress finally passing the fiscal stimulus, which $2 trillion uh, has some multiplicative effects throughout the economy. So the administration is claiming $2 trillion is more like uh, $4 to $6 trillion. Uh, nonetheless, this is all providing important economic support. And to your point, Lisa, uh, a lot of individuals who may have been out of work uh, at least are getting some transfer payments from the government. And in fact, with the uh, fiscal stimulus bill, uh, they can tack an additional $600 per week onto that transfer payment. Uh, that certainly doesn't bridge the gap, but it helps to at least offset some of the sting from this hard stop in the economy. So, Carl, just wanted to get your latest thought coming out of Bloomberg Economics. How do you think uh, GDP is going to look for the U.S. this year? We've seen a lot of uh, forecasts coming out of Wall Street. Just wondering where uh, Bloomberg Economics is. Sure. So uh, looking at the second quarter, we're uh, looking for a 9% contraction in the downside scenario. We think that could be closer to 14%. Uh, but this entirely depends on the extent of the lockdown. If we're looking at a lockdown of 45 to 60 days, uh, then those forecasts will be roughly on the mark. If we reopen too soon and have to lock back down, or if the lockdown lasts through the entirety of the second quarter, uh, then we're looking for a sharper contraction in the economy. But I think it's too early uh, to be making that call. Dave, uh, on the market side, there's a question of the actual economic effect of the shutdowns. And then there's the effect of whatever is going to uh, probably be passed today by Congress. Do we have a sense of how much the market gain today is hinging on that bill getting passed today? Boeing and the airline stocks. You talk about two areas that stand to benefit. You know, we've reported the uh, people familiar with the matter telling us that, that Boeing, you know, it, it may end up with as much as $60 billion in assistance when you count in their suppliers as well uh, coming out of the deal. Boeing shares up 12% at the moment. And you look across the board, you see the airlines higher, and they're due for $50 billion in loans and loan guarantees. Delta leading the way there with a gain of almost 7%. Uh, and actually, the airlines are doing substantially better than the cruise lines at this point, which aren't in the same position to get assistance under the measure. I mean, Carnival's up, but you got Royal Caribbean and Norwegian Cruise Line down. So, you know, it goes to show you that uh, there is a real focus on the winners and I wouldn't say the losers. I mean, they certainly, if you think about the cruise lines, they've lost plenty already. Uh, but the companies that are going to get the most benefit out of this bill uh, are uh, doing relatively well in today's trading. Carl, just real quick here, I would love to get your sense uh, of whether we're going to see another 3.3 million uh, initial jobless claims next reading. Well, I think we're going to see uh, something in the million-plus territory for sure. Uh, the issue we're contending with here as we look at the numbers is that uh, there's a significant backlog of applicants uh, who have not been able to file. Websites are crashing and call centers are uh, overwhelmed uh, with the capacity constraints. So I think that we will see uh, at least a couple more weeks with jobless claims the initial claims uh, north of a million, it could be two or three million. I don't think we'll see as high of readings going forward as we saw today. Yeah. Uh, just looking at today's number implies five and a half percent on the unemployment rate. So almost a two point increase. Uh, wow. If we continue to see this, then we're talking about, you know, seven, eight percent unemployment in the second quarter.
Cara Kadana, Chief U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics, and Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor. Thank you, uh, both of you and Paul, just to get a sense of how significant this 3.3 million number was. It was quadruple the prior record in the 1980s. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.